I invite you to open this morning to Revelation 20 where we pick up where we've left off and we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 15. We spent the last couple of weeks considering the content of the first six verses of the book of Revelation chapter 20. And we've seen that, again, we're looking at a recapitulation. Now, again, that's that big word. It's a, it's a cycling around. We're looking at the same thing again that we've been seeing all throughout the book of Revelation since chapter 4, 5, and 6, the revelation of Christ upon his throne. He takes the scroll, and now he's executing the plans and purposes of God during the church age until he returns. And all through these chapters, we've been cycling back around the seal judgment, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. We're looking at not a chronological series of events that this has to happen and then this and then this and then. No, we're looking at a king. And we're looking at this king in majesty and power and glory and from various aspects. And every time we come around, we're seeing something new, something precious, something soul-stirring. And as we, it's not unlike the Super Bowl. Probably many of y'all are going to watch this afternoon. I will be too. There's going to be one game going on, but do you know how many cameras are going to be around that stadium today? How many? I mean, every vantage point. And it's all pointing at the same game, but it, each camera may be focused upon something a little bit different. All throughout the game, they're going to be kind of pointing out different things. And every time you see that, think, my goodness, that is so helpful because that's what Revelation is. It's, it's, it's showing us the person and work of our king enthroned on high, and just from various aspects, different elements. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see our king. But as we've looked at verses 1 through 6 the past several weeks, in verses 1 through 3, we saw the vision of the binding of Satan upon the earth. We saw the binding there during the church age, which was accomplished during the, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That ever since Christ rose from the grave and, and, uh, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Satan has been bound. Now that wasn't true in the Old Testament. The, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles, the world lived in darkness. Satan deceived the world. But since then, since the resurrection, now Satan's deceiving work is bound. It's been restricted so much so that after the resurrection, Jesus sends out his disciples, go ye therefore into all the nations, undeceiving, undeceiving them about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Show them the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the fullness of who Christ is, and the need of Christ. Go and make Christ known. That didn't come till after the resurrection because it was at the death and resurrection, Christ was bound. Then in verses 4 through 6, our eyes were lifted upward, right? We, we saw the binding of Satan on earth, which is where he is today. He's bound. But then in verses 4 through 6, we, our eyes were lifted upward to see the throne in heaven, the thrones in heaven. And John there is helping us to consider the, the blessings of the millennium, the millennial blessings of the true believer in Christ, that the millennium is now. It's now during the church age. 1,000 is symbolic, a symbolic number just like pretty much every other number in the book of Revelation. 10 being the number of completion, perfection, 10 to the third power, 3 being God's number, divinity, trinity. It is the old, this is God's timing. This is God's timetable over this period of time. And during this time, as you look upward, you see the martyrs and those who had died for their faith. And where are they? They're on a throne. To be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord. And this is a, a blessing to the church to be reminded that though you live in a period of time where the world is in rebellion to Christ and where your flesh is still barking at you to drift away from Christ, cling to Christ with the promise and know that even if the world does its worst to you and it kills you, look up. See the martyrs who have gone before you. See the Christians who have gone before you. They're on a throne, around the throne of God. That's the blessing of the millennium. The true reward of the Christian life is Christ. To be with Christ. To, be, to dwell where he is. And that is the blessing that's painted for us in verses 4 through 6. Well, now there's two other visions here in chapter 20. We've seen a, a vision below the binding of Satan, we've seen a vision above where the martyred saints and those who have died in their faith are at the... Now there's two other visions in verses 7 through 15. And with God's help over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to take these two together. Revelation 20, we'll begin reading in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning and just a cursory reading reveals to us we are dealing with magnanimous things here. Things for which our soul must wrestle with. Things that have eternal consequences. The temptation is to rush past this and to not give it an honest hearing. But Father, this text was written to the seven churches, to the professing Christians. You want your church to feel the gravity of what's taking place here in these two visions. That Father, we ourselves might bring our hearts and our lives to bear in light of this word to make our own calling and election sure while it is the day of salvation. So Father, I confess to you, this is one of those messages that nobody likes to preach. It's one that to be perfectly honest, I'm not even capable of preaching. And so Father, as we open your word together, we ask your spirit to come and to preach to our hearts. That the voice our hearts hear is, is your voice. And the Father, our hearts would be prompted to wrestle with the reality of what the text says and its implication for my soul today. Would you help us send your spirit to do what we won't do ourselves? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Prior to his death, Dr. R.C. Sproul used to write a monthly article in his Table Talk magazine published by Ligonier Ministries. And every month, his article was always titled the same thing. And the title always struck me. The title was, Right Now Counts Forever. So no matter what subject matter he was writing about, the title of the article was, Right Now Counts Forever. Which means this, whatever you're doing today, has implications for your eternity, right? Right now counts forever. Now the title was biblical and was profound and a needed reminder to a generation of Christians today who are far too often inclined to think that, no, 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 what I did in the past is what counts forever. That day that I professed faith in Jesus Christ, I clearly remember it. I remember where I was. I remember what. It's what I did then that counts forever. But what I do right now, well, I'm under grace. What now? I mean, I can forget. I can repent and confess my sins and seek forgiveness. And I mean, my goodness, God knows I'm only human. I'm weak. God knows the circumstances I've been through, the, the hell on earth that I'm going through. If anybody understands my situation now and why maybe I'm not living unto Christ, well, God will understand that. You see, what matters is what I did back then. Well, 
The message of Revelation 27 through 15 is a sobering word to the church of Jesus Christ that what Dr. Sproul used to write is absolutely correct. Right now is what counts forever. Right now, what you do, and more important than what you do, why you do it, for whom you do it. Right now, those factors count for eternity. And where we ourselves wrestle with the reality, but I really want it to be what I did back then counts forever. Our prayer is that God would so stir in our soul to come to grip with the reality of what's revealed here. Unfortunately, we live in a day today where many, if not most people, don't really want to think about eternity. Now, eventually, God will bring us to a place through our own mortality, through as we age, as our health declines, where we're just, we are forced to think about eternity. But until that time, and particularly the younger you are, we don't want to think about eternity. Eternity, it, it seems so far away, it seems distant, it almost seems impersonal. And let's be real honest, the younger you are, I've got a lot of life I want to live. I'd like to go to college, maybe get a degree. College isn't forever. Maybe I want to go get it. I want to start my career. I want to go get a job. I'd like to make some money. I'd like to be able to buy a house. Maybe one day I get married. One day I have children. There's, there's some things I'd like to do. Yes, eternity is out there, but, but my goodness, right now, I want to think about now. But what we're going to see here in Revelation 20 is that if we would think about eternity now, no matter, and the younger, the better. If we would think about eternity now, and when I say eternity, we're talking about both heaven and hell. If we thought more about heaven and hell today, it would change the way we live right now. Jonathan Edwards was a man who, by God's grace, was his eyes were opened to see and behold the glory of God. Edwards was a man who was entranced by God, captivated, hypnotized by the God who is. He was infatuated with the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In Edwards' mind, when you go and read his sermons, he talks openly about the beauty of Christ, and nothing compares to Christ. And out of the overflow of his en enchantment with God, and his, his affection for Christ came this overflowing desire to, I want to make sure I please this God with every breath that I take, right here, right now, today. And so Edwards, understanding this concept that right now counts forever, at the age of 18 began to write out a series of what have come now to be known as resolutions. And he wrote out these resolutions by which, with God's help, he determined that in light of heaven and hell, in light of the God who is, in light of who Christ is, with God's help, he would resolve today and every day to live these ways. These resolutions, he wrote, were reasoned from Scripture and were motivated by the high esteem that he placed upon God and his affection for Christ. At the completion of these resolutions there were some 70 of them and he was determined to read these every week and to live upon them every day so serious was Edwards about right now counts forever today I must be about living unto God that he resolved to as he was looking unto Jesus part of that is keeping one eye upon heaven and one upon hell this is one of his resolutions he says this Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I think I should, to act as I think I should right now, as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torment of hell. What's he saying there? I'm resolved to live unto Christ this day, and one of the things that motivates me, because right now counts forever, is if I can be if I can see the glory of heaven. That's where I want to be. And if I can hear the echo of the, the shrieks in hell, that's where I don't want to be. Not because I fear pain, but because that's not where Christ is. If I can feel the, the weight of this, then it drives me day in and day out. 
to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So Edwards intentionally chose to think about those who were already confined in the bowels of hell, suffering under the wrath of God, because he knew. Thinking about eternity, both heaven and hell, would right now affect the way he lives, would right now affect the way he thinks, would right in that moment affect the choices he makes. When sin tempts him to despair, when sin tempts him to, 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 to drift away from Christ, that awareness of heaven and hell, where Christ is and where Christ is not, because Christ is precious to him to do what today best serves his profession of faith in Christ and will get him to where he wants to be. Such a sober estimation and meditation on eternity, on heaven and hell, is what gave Edwards the perspective of devotion to God that marked his life, it marked his prayers, and I promise you, if you, ever, if you go and I urge you, buy a volume of the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This was a man who was devoted to God. And what we see in Edwards is the purpose of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15. That's why this section is here, written for those seven churches, who what? They have their own problems. If right now counts forever, do you remember the, 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 the struggles that the churches were going through? Many of them had drifted away from the purity of the gospel. They had drifted away from Christ's kingship. They had allowed false teaching to come and infiltrate their, their, their churches. And over and over, the message of the seven churches was what? Repent, repent, repent. Now, 20, chapter 20, verses 7 through 15 brings in the urgency. You must repent because right now your repentance and returning to the Lord, it matters for eternity. It's not what you professed years ago that matters. It's right now that counts forever. And what's the overarching message of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15? It's this. Oh, God, please give us ears to hear. It is that right now, there is looming across the horizon of time a final judgment. And right now, this world that we are on, this blue ball that's spinning through the cosmos, is on an absolute collision course with God himself. Let me say that again. This big blue ball that we are on this morning is on an absolute collision course with God himself, and he will judge the world in final judgment. This final judgment, it's, we're warned about it all throughout Scripture. The book of Romans calls it the day of wrath. The book of Jude calls it the judgment of that great day. The book of Romans calls it a day of judgment. Paul in Acts 17 refers to God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Those are all referring to the same thing. What? What we find here in Revelation chapter 20 known as the great white throne judgment. It's the exact same thing. And despite the fact that this day of judgment was revealed some 2,000 years ago, this day has always been fast approaching. It's fast approaching now. Now that may sound crazy. What do you mean it's fast approaching? 2,000 years they've been waiting for this day. Beloved, fast approaching not in terms of time. Fast approaching in terms of the gravity of the God these people will stand before. It's fast approaching. And on that day, God himself will hold court and all the world will be on trial before God. In this final judgment, we just read the text. We clued in a little bit of what's going to take place. In this final judgment, God will open what is referred to as the books. These books 
contain the notes of the omniscient God's precise and accurate record of every life that has ever lived. The omniscient God who knows all, everything about us, what we've done, what we've thought, the motives behind what we've done, those things that we thought we did that nobody knew, we hid from our parents, we hid from our friends, we hid from our families, we thought we got away with it. It's all recorded. It was all done before the face of an omniscient, omnipresent God. We may have done it in the dark. It was done before His very gaze. And everyone is recorded. And on that day, that book will be opened. And the God of the universe will present His case. And every sinner, every lost sinner, will be judged God will announce his verdict and God will announce and execute perfect judgment and he will condemn every unbeliever to hell and where is it coming from that book that records everything about us do you see right now counts forever Right now, how we live, what we do, what we worship, why we do it. Believe me, I've said this over and over. More important than what we do is why we do it. For the glory of God. For the, the glory of Christ. Out of our love. Right now. Count forever. It would seem that we live in a day today where modern man is betting against God. Because this day hasn't come, and we've been waiting some 2,000 years, they're betting, it'll never come. It's a bad bet. It's a real bad bet. Christ is the faithful and true, the Word of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the one sitting on this throne of judgment. He cannot lie. This final judgment, which stands at the end of time, comes after the fulfillment of all of God's plans and purposes. And if you look again at the text, specifically verses 11 through 15, it's portrayed to us in terms of a courtroom. This is the vision that John sees. This courtroom, the highest court in the universe. This court is the supreme court of the universe. It's a court of no appeal. Every lost sinner will be individually summoned to stand before this judge and to hear the indictment of the book laid out everything they've ever done before this God. The evidence will be presented. The evidence will be irrefutable. There will be no rebuttal offered. No opportunity for defense. The one on the throne is no sympathetic judge. The day of grace is gone. The day of mercy is past. There will be none. Not one drop of grace. There will be no advocate to defend the sinner. No one to come up and say, well, but you need to understand what was going on. There will be no mistrial of justice. It will be only perfect judgment. And once condemned, there is no appeal process, no parole, no we'll give you 60 days in hell and on good behavior, maybe we'll let you come up. It's over. And this is being written to the seven churches. Why? Aren't the churches, these are the true Christians? I hope so. But Jesus himself has exposed in those seven churches, and it's true of every church in every age, that when the corporate church gathers, there's both sheep and wolves. That there's tares that grows in among the wheat. 
And so this message comes to the church for you and I to recognize right now counts forever. Now, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this text. My hope this morning is to get through a couple of the truths that this text brings out. And the first thing I want us to see this morning, all of this up to this point has been kind of introductory to feel the gravity of why we must enter into this court ourselves. Well, now what do we see? The first truth, we want to think about the purpose. The purpose behind this final judgment, this great white throne judgment. And the purpose, if I can say it this way, is simply this, the glory of God. It's the glory of God, and I'll simplify it this way. For all those who have refused to glorify God right now in this life, every day, God will glorify himself in the destruction of that soul. The purpose of this judgment is the glory of God. Now, where do we get that from? Look at verse 11 with me. Chapter 20, verse 11. It begins with one word, then. Then. Before we go any further, we can stop and say, okay, well, there's an obvious connection to what has come before it. Then means there's a connection. So what has come before this back in verses 7 through 10? What's going on there? Well, very quickly, we go back and look at verses 7 through 10. This is the destruction of Satan. Now, we, we saw in verses 1 through 3 that in the death and resurrection of Christ that Satan has been bound. But at the end of the church age, he will be released. He will be released and the armies of the world will gather together in one more charge against the church of Jesus Christ. And there will be one more great battle. But keep in mind this. This is not a battle we haven't already seen. Because of the recapitulation in the book of Revelation, this is, this is the exact same uh, most recently that we saw in Revelation chapter 19. Do you remember the armies of the world gathering together against the rider on the white horse? They came together to do damage to the church. And there was this Great battle. What do we remember about that battle? <laughs> it was no battle at all. It was not a battle of wits. It was not a battle of strategies. King Jesus on the white horse versus uh, Satan and his, his, his uh, other people. They thought it was going to be that. But Christ shows up and it's over. That's exactly what we see in verses 7 through 10. It's a re capitulation of what happened in chapter it has to be that otherwise you have to ask wait a minute what happened here at 19 it's happening again is it twice what's going on how many of these people are there no it's the same thing same thing we've seen in chapter 7 8 and we're told here in this defeat of satan verse 9 of chapter 20 Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where their beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, I mean, don't make more of this than it is. Jesus shows up and dominates and wins, and it's over. Jesus, no shots are fired. Jesus isn't on the verge of destruction, and he has to come back to beat him. He shows up, and it's over. And there's nothing the devil can do to avoid his final demise. Now, here's the point of this. Verse 11 begins with then. So obviously there's a connection to the judgment of sinners in the great white throne judgment and the judgment that is poured out on Satan. You have Satan's demise, then this, what's the connection? Well, everything we see God doing here in chapter 20 is not isolated as part of the greater story of redemption in the Bible. The greater story of creation, fall, redemption, the consummation of the kingdom in Christ Jesus, ultimately ushering into a new heaven and a new earth. It's just like we just read over the last couple of weeks with our kids. God destroys a world that is in sin and rebellion against him. He destroys everybody except for Noah and his family, and the thought is, I'm wiping it clean. It's a fresh start. But what's the problem? Noah's every bit the sinner that previous generations were as well. And as his family 
multiplies and grows, it's that family that builds the, 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 the tower to heaven. You see, in order for this fresh start to happen, sin has to be purged. All who have sinned who are not children of Christ has to be purged. And before the new heaven and the new earth can come, Satan has to be done away with. And not only Satan, all the enemies of God as well. What we see in this great white throne judgment is a purging of the world. Now, the danger is we read about a purging of sinners in the great white throne judgment and we kind of shrug our own shoulders and say, sure glad that's not me. Oh, praise God, we pray by the blood of Christ, that's not me. But that is certainly not something we can rush through without giving attention to our own soul. When John is connecting what he did to Satan in, in verses uh, 7 through 10 with what he's now about to do to sinners in verses 11 through 15, he's saying in order for the new heaven and the new earth to come about where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, then all sin has to be done away with. It must be purged. All creation must be purged. Now, I've taken care of Satan, but there's one more left to take care of. Man. Man must be purged. Before the new heaven and new earth, before a world where there's holiness, where there's righteousness, where there's no sin, where there's no suffering. It makes logical sense. All the other sin has to be destroyed. All sinners have to be destroyed. Satan has to be destroyed. And that's what the great white throne judgment is. It's a purging of the world for the kingdom of Christ. That's the significance of the then in verse 11. First Satan's destroyed and then Many, if not, listen, if we understand Jesus' gospel well, not just many, most people will be swept away into hell. And there's one reason why, one purpose for it. The glory of God. For the rule and reign of King Jesus. And the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus is all, to anyone for whom Christ is not all, that's not a place for you. And anyone for whom Christ is not all will be swept away. Do you see? God's eternal purpose, going all the way back to before the foundation of the world, His purpose has never been about us. His purpose has always been about His glory. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us. The only reason he would put us on this big blue ball is for him. That we might be privileged to, to share in his glory because he doesn't need us. God's eternal purpose has been for his glory, his glory through the salvation of a people, through the person of Jesus Christ who would come to earth born of a virgin die the death of a sacrificial lamb take on the wrath of God himself thereby making a way for those who look to Jesus to have those sins washed away to receive the new birth a new heart for which Christ is all right we've been saying that for for years now that the new birth regeneration the least you can be to call yourself a Christian is Jesus is all and to the glory of God he does all that and for all others who refuse Christ who won't give Christ the glory he's due we have the promise of destruction 
Do you remember the story of A Christmas Carol? This is where, for, bear with me, and this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rub so close that some of you may not like what I'm about to say. And I, I Believe me, I, I'm not saying it for that purpose. I just know how things work. You ever, you remember the story of A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. So one of the ghosts takes him around and he sees present day his family and friends, but they can't see Scrooge, right? And Scrooge is allowed to, to listen in on their conversations, and he, he pours in on one conversation, and, and they're saying terrible things about somebody, just horrible things about somebody. And Scrooge is kind of, man, this is a terrible person, this is a horrible person. He doesn't know who they're talking about until it comes out at the very end of the scene, they're talking about him. He doesn't know until it's revealed that they're talking about him. As God brings us into the counsel of the Almighty, to a great discussion going on in the Godhead about final judgment, God is allowed, it's almost like we are Scrooge. We're being allowed in to, to gaze in to see final judgment, to hear a conversation going on about how this is going to work. He's allowing us to hear the Godhead saying, now, in the fullness of time, before we can usher in the new heaven and the new earth, all sin must be done away with. Satan, done away with. All sinners, done away with. And, 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 and we're hearing the plans, and we're, we're taking it all in. And that alone just causes us to tremble a little bit. My goodness, this is horrific. This is horrible. And as you listen more closely, perhaps you hear, talking about you it could be this morning that like Scrooge in a Christmas carol that maybe this text which was written to the seven churches to the churches to you and I that we would read it this morning that maybe just maybe in light of what the gospel says the gospel is love for Jesus and right now love for Jesus counts forever not what I did Maybe, just maybe, God is revealing these things so that we would see where we are before it's too late. Because if your name is not found in the work of Christ, and in the book it doesn't say this individual right now, they weren't perfect. But there was a love for Christ. And in sanctification, there was a growing love for Christ. And there was a, a less and less sin. Not because of how strong they were, but because of the, the magnetism of Christ. They were being conformed to the likeness of Christ as they were looking unto Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 4. That as that's taking place, this person bears witness of being a true believer. If our name is not there, then we are counted among those swept away. Believe me, I know this is a horrible thing to think about. And some of you may have already said, you're not talking about me and I'm not going to let you kind of take me down this path and all I can do is pray the work of the Spirit there. But the final judgment, the purpose of it for the glory of God is a purging of all who live in rebellion to Christ, no matter how moral or religious they are, who live in rebellion to Christ. The text goes on. Not only does it tell us about God's purpose in the, the uh, then, but let's keep reading in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. So John's eyes are taken and riveted by another throne. Now throne is one of the themes we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation. But it's a terrifying scene that's unveiled here when he sees this throne. This throne is the highest court in the universe. This throne is the supreme court of heaven and earth. And just think about the words that are used to describe it. A great white throne. I've heard that terminology thrown around all my life. The great white throne, great white throne, great white throne. Rarely have I ever heard anyone just pause and what does that mean? Let's begin with great. Great has to do, it speaks of, of the power. 
the power of the one upon it. This throne is mighty in power. This throne towers above all other thrones. This throne possesses universal jurisdiction. It has authority over everyone and everything, all of the creator order. This throne overrides every other ju judicial ruling. No matter what our, our courts in America say about abortion, this throne trumps them all. This throne rules over them all. This throne is great in authority. When this throne speaks, or the one on this throne speaks, it is irreversible. Its verdicts are final. The sentence pronounced from this throne, because it's great, cannot be overturned. The great throne here. This is the greatest, truest, most righteous courtroom, most perfect courtroom in the world. Secondly, it's not only the great throne, it's the great white throne. White speaks to its purity. The holiness, the justice from this throne. Every judgment that comes from this great white throne will be true. It will be perfect. There will never be injustice. From this throne, there's no partiality. Every sinful deed will be presented as it actually is. On this pure throne, the hearts of men will be exposed for what they are. And I emphasize the hearts of men. Yes, the actions of men, but more important is the why, the hearts of men. On this pure white throne, there's no exaggeration. Every bit of evidence pronounced from this throne, mind, thought, deed, action, everything, will be true. It's a great white throne. And be honest, this is not the first time we've heard about this. If we were reading our Bibles and paying attention to this end time final judgment, the warning came far, far sooner than Revelation chapter 20. In Psalm chapter 9, we read in verse 7, But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. We're told right then and there, the throne of God was established for a purpose, for judgment. And then verse 8 says, and he will judge the world in righteousness with equity. That's Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 7 tells us God is a righteous judge. And don't miss this part. A God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. God has bent his bow and made it ready. God has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows as fiery shafts. And the thing about God, when he sets his target, his weapons to target in judgment, he cannot miss. He will not miss. In Psalm chapter 11, the psalmist writes, Upon the wicked, God will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. All of these, and there are vast others, are simply a reminder. You don't want to bet against this God. You don't want to kid yourself into believing that right now doesn't count forever. I'm never going to be called to account. Those things I did in private, those things I did in secret, I'm never going to have to be accountable for those things. This is the great white throne. And just as he purged Satan from the world, this too is a purging of all sinners that has to take place so that there can be a new heaven and a new earth in righteousness and holiness, in love to Jesus. Notice he also tells us the judge in verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
Stop right there. We don't have to guess. Who's he seeing? He's been telling us all throughout. It's Jesus on this throne. Now, throughout Scripture, there's a, this is the throne of God. It's the throne of Jesus. This is not creating some kind of dichotomy that it has to be one or the other, and, and Scripture's contradicting itself. This is the, the Godhead together. This is not uh, splitting hairs apart. You have one, you have the other. But clearly, it's the throne of Jesus Christ who's seated on the throne, meaning he's actively presiding. He's, he's enthroned. He's ruling. He's ready to, to judge the day. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, for not even the Father judges, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Peter said in Acts 10, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day. And this one has been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead. Romans chapter 2, on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. Through Christ Jesus. The point here is just simply, who is on this great white throne that is true and right and pure? It's Jesus Christ. And though we may want to take some kind of solace, well, Jesus is merciful. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gracious. This is a good thing it's Jesus on there. If it had been God the Father, again, we're kind of, Splitting hairs here. If it, I might have worried the Almighty, the Holy, the, uh, the one who's a, a blazing inferno. But this is Jesus, and he's merciful. No, no, no. When he takes this position, the lion has become a, or excuse me, the lamb has become a lion. And how does a lion live? He captures his prey with those mighty jaws. And once caught, that prey has no, no recourse. That prey is destroyed. The lion conquers and consumes his prey. So too will it be on this day. John intends for the seven churches, for Covenant Life Church, to read this, not to fast forward and say, well, that's going to be bad for somebody, but to tremble and to be terrified ourselves. To be terrified as we continue reading in verse 11, from his presence, who's the hymn there? Christ Jesus on his throne. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. So terrifying is Christ on the throne here that when everything in the universe sees the awesomeness of Christ, they retreat, they try to pull back, they try to get as far away from him as possible. Again, I've told you we're looking at recapitulation here. We're not seeing something here that we haven't seen before. We're just seeing it on a grander scale. But is this not what we saw in final judgment with the seven seals? When Christ comes and, and the earth is being rolled up like a scroll and everyone's, what, trying to hide under the mountains and praying for the mountains to call and bury them alive. Why? So they don't have to come face to face with Christ. See, this is nothing we haven't seen before. It's just coming with more illumination. More detail. So everything seeks to flee from the presence of Christ here. But what does the text say? And no place was found for them. They're doing everything they can. In fear. But there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You see, this throne and this Christ on the throne is inescapable. You see, the plan and the storyline of God has always been the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and the creation of a new heaven and new earth. But these will not be allowed in. These are those who've lived their whole life. They've ignored Christ. They've denied Christ. They've crucified Christ. They've blasphemed Christ. They've marginalized Christ. They've played games with Christ. They've, they've honored him with their lips. Meanwhile, daily, their hearts are far from him. They've put Christ off. And now in this final day, every lost sinner will stand face to face, quorum Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of this lion. And they look up and they see this judge. What happens? I think Psalm 97 is a faithful picture. 
The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. The whole earth melts like wax. We live in a day today. So many people boast of their greatness. And if not their greatness, their morality, they boast of their religion, they boast, they puff themselves up. I don't need to think about this. Our focus, first and foremost, is on the throne. The one on the throne. And to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then to consider, who am I in light of this one? Imagine you being led into the throne room of God. You're being forced through, pushed through. As you're going, you're seeing passing you this way. All of creation screaming, crying, begging, turn around, go away, don't take another step further. And yet you're being forced. It's your turn before this lion. And when you come face to face, you're done. Because you have never Known God, glorified God, loved Christ in the way you were created to. Before the face of God, who are we? Here on a Sunday morning, we may feel puffed up, but before the face of God, we're an insignificant ant. There's a terrifying picture here. What he did to Satan, now he's doing to man. And I'll close with this this morning. I've got to get through this part. We see the connection between the demise of Satan and now what he's doing to sinners. We see the throne. We see the one on the throne. We see the, re the response of those who come face to face to flee, to try to get away, but it's an inescapable reality. Because the next thing we see is the summons of Christ. When Christ from the throne issues the summons to appear before Him, you go. You appear. It's this person's court date. And it will not be rescheduled. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Let's stop there. I don't think we're going to get further than this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Who are these? These are all the unsaved. These are all the unregenerate. These are those whom the Holy Spirit, think back to what we talked about last week, who have not been recipients of the new birth, born from above, given a heart of love to Jesus. This is all those going back to the beginning of time. It's a great number. And one by one, they will be ushered in to stand before this judge, both great and small. Well, who are the great and small? They're just, they're broad categories. Great, I think, refers to the, probably those great men of history, those men of renown, that we think about. I mean, who will be counted among this? Alexander the Great will be there. Napoleon the Great will be there. Hitler, Stalin, all great men and women of influence whose names are known and recognized, but who did not bend the knee to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All the great and mighty and influential will be there, but not only them. The small are standing there as well. Small who? Small in stature, not physically. Small in visibility, small in influence. This is probably where, if God forbid any of us were to be called to stand before this throne, we would fall into this category. People who live lives of obscurity. The history books will not record us. People whose lives amounted to very little. They drew their breath, they drew their salary, one day they died. If you walk around long enough, you might find a cemetery plot somewhere, but you wouldn't recognize the name. You wouldn't know anything about them. 
These are your neighbors, four or five houses down. Maybe you know your next door neighbor, but the further you get away, you don't know them. It's those people. It's your work associates. You see them through the week. Maybe you know a little bit about them. You don't, they're just outliers. They're your classmates. No one really knows who they are. Except Jesus on the throne. Who knows them by name. And has every one of their days written down in the book. Because right now counts forever. Every day counts forever. But you know what? We can divide that grouping out a little bit further. Who is it who will stand before the great white throne when this summon is issued? Let me give you five more groups of people. Number one, all out-and-out sinners will be there. All those who have sinned violently against God, all those who have rejected Him, those who hold no bones about it. I hate God. I don't want God. I don't believe in God. I've broken God's law. I don't even care. It doesn't even matter. I don't flinch about it. All those who've spit in the face of Jesus Christ, who hate God, who hate His church, who hate the Bible, who hate any form of morality, they'll be there. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know Paul writes that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? They're going to be swept away. That's one group. There's out and out sinners. Here's a second group. The self-righteous. Those who pride themselves in being so good, so moral, are inclined to think they're good enough in and of themselves. Those who hear about this great, great white throne and the power and the authority of the Almighty sing on the throne and don't tremble because they think, you know, I've been pretty good. Now, I fear for my neighbor. I fear for my, 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 my children's spouse. I fear for this and that person because, I mean, they, but I, compared to them, I'm, I, I don't have anything to fear. Please, God, break that heart. God does not grade on the curve. God does not measure you up against your neighbor. The fact is, you will be compared to God Himself, to the perfections of Christ. And if you are not found to be as perfect as He is, you'll be swept away just like Satan was into eternal damnation. There's a third group here. Out and out sinners, the self-righteous, the religious cult members, those who followed Muhammad or Buddha or uh, the Reverend Sun Moon or even Mary as co-redemptress. They too will be swept away. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the out-and-out sinner, the self-righteous, those who follow the religious cults. And as we continue on, we move closer and closer to some of the categories we might find ourselves into. Number four, the procrastinator. The procrastinator will stand before the throne of God and be swept away. This is the one who attended church, knew about God, knew what they were supposed to do, knew that Christianity meant a life lived unto Jesus, but they thought, but later. I got other things right now that are my focus. My health is poor. I need to focus upon my health. My family, my finances. Let me get through college. Maybe when I get married. Let me have children. Then I'll get serious because I want to raise my children in a godly home. Let me get through to here and then I'll really get serious about these things. Proverbs 27.1 Boast not yourself of tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring forth. The Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now, today is the day of salvation procrastinators who keep putting Christ, keep Christ at arm's length 
will be summoned to stand before this throne and will be swept away into eternal damnation. And then fifth and finally, unregenerate church members. Unregenerate church members will be summoned to appear before the throne of God and be swept away. Maybe they've had their name on a church roll for as, as long as church rolls have been around. But their name is not stamped in the blood of Christ in the book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. They may profess to know Christ. They sing the songs. They open their Bibles. They sit through preaching. They participate in the prayer meeting. They, they're active in social services but they are not possessed by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They're attached to church, but not attached to Christ. They have a form of religion, but not the reality. Unless you think, man, you're really pulling this out of thin air, aren't you? This is exactly who Jesus talks to when he says, in the gospel, he stands before his people come before him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons on your name? Did we not perform any wonders in your name? To which Jesus replies, I say to you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Yeah, I saw your activity. I'm looking at the why. I'm looking at the heart. I never knew you. Your heart tells me you were never enchanted by me, entranced by me, in love with me. You were religious and you were a religious fanatic, and everybody looked at you like, well, this person is super, I mean, they're a Bible reader, they're a church attender, they're, I mean, they're the ones who uphold the church itself, and the church has to be doing, this is a church person. And Jesus says, depart from me. True religion is a religion of love for Christ. You see, unconverted church members will be summoned to appear for the great white throne judgment because you can be religious and not be born again. And we close with the sea giving up the dead that were in it and death and Hades give up the dead. What's he talking about? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter when you lived. If you were one who were not enchanted by Jesus Christ, even if you lived in the second century and you died in a shipwreck and your body is down in the bottom of the ocean, and in those days, if you're at the bottom of the ocean, there ain't no way to get you. You're still there. And if you died in a plane crash in the middle of nowhere and they hadn't been able to retrieve the plane and no one's been able to retrieve your bodies, it's out there somewhere on this day. There's no hiding place. You will be raised up to stand face to face, quorum Deo, before the face of God. You see, right now, the, and we're, we're coming to a clumsy stopping point because there's more here. But the message thus far, right now counts forever. Right now, where is your love for Jesus? Right now, your affection for Jesus. Where is Jesus in the... Uh, the, the ongoings of your desires, your wants. If he's not supreme, repent. It's sin. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and then the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Christ. He won't grate on a curve. Well, I was third in your affections. It's not too bad. I'll, if I'm not first in the new heaven and new earth, Every knee will bow, every tongue confess Jesus is Lord and love Jesus and desire him. And if that's not true of us today, tremble, tremble. It's not what you did yesterday that counts forever. Right now, flee to Jesus. Flee to him. You've heard me tell the story before, and I love this illustration. There's a wildfire that's coming across the, the landscape, a, a, a farmer's field, and everywhere they go, the, 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 the blazing inferno, and it's coming. It's going to burn down their house. It's going to destroy their family. And the farmer's trying to figure out what to do, what to do. And he does this. He goes out to the field. He sets part of it to blaze. And he creates a burnt space there in the field. And he tells his wife and kids, y'all stand right here as the, as the flames continue to come in. Why? Because... It can't burn again. 
Here you're safe, it's already been burnt. Likewise, if we stand before, we realize that maybe we're like Scrooge as we're hearing this thing and maybe I need to take into consideration my own soul and the priorities of my heart. Flee to the place where the wrath of God has already burned. The cross, where Christ took punishment for us and gave us a new heart to love Jesus. If you've never done that before, flee to Christ. If you're convinced in your soul that you do love Christ supremely, but maybe you're in a season where you've drifted away your flesh, well then repent, person-oriented, return to Christ. Right now counts forever. In the nearness of this judgment, not because of time. It could happen tomorrow. It may be another 2,000 years. The nearness isn't about how quickly it gets here. Their nearness is about the gravity of the God we will stand face to face before. My plea to you, run to Christ. He's your only hope. If we're stopping at an odd point, we'll be back here next week to continue looking at this judgment. Stay with us, bear with us. But I know my soul, like yours, has enough to chew on right now. Let's flee to our King.